Welcome to this Emultiple Sclerosis Review Podcast. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of Emultiple Sclerosis Review. Our guests today are both from the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, where Dr. Michael Kornberg is an assistant professor in the Department of Neurology, and Dr. Elias Satirkos is a clinical and research postdoctoral fellow in neuroimmunology. And we're here to talk about the clinical application of some of the new advances in the diagnosis and monitoring of patients with MS. E-Multiple Sclerosis Review is presented by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. This program is supported by educational grants from Biogen Incorporated and Celgene Corporation. Learning objectives for this audio program include describe the potential use of the central vein sign in discriminating MS from mimicking conditions and discuss the role of emerging biomarkers, including optical coherence tomography and serum neurofilament light chain in predicting future disability in MS. Both our guests have disclosed that they have no relationship with any product or service relevant to today's discussion. They have, however, disclosed that they will be discussing the emerging role of serum neurofilament light chain and OCT measures in monitoring and predicting the disease course in MS, as well as the role of the central vein sign in differentiating MS from mimicking conditions. None of these biomarkers has been officially approved for this purpose. Dr. Satirkos, Dr. Kornberg, thank you both for joining us today. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you very much for having us today. As you pointed out in your newsletter issue, doctors, there are some critical gaps in clinicians' abilities to accurately diagnose, prognosticate, and monitor patients with MS. As you reviewed the recent literature describing advances in imaging techniques and bioassays that can help identify individuals with ongoing neural axonal damage. In today's discussion, I'd like to focus on how awareness of these advances can impact clinical practice. So to start us out, uh, if you would please, Dr. Satirkos, bring us a patient scenario. We have a patient who is a 40-year-old African-American woman with a history of mild systemic lupus erythematosus diagnosed due to a presentation with arthralgias, a malar rash, oral ulcers, who is found to have a positive anti-nuclear antibody with a titer of 1 to 320, who's been treated with hydroxychloroquine. Over the past year, she has been experiencing the insidious onset of fatigue and limb paresthesias, which has been progressively worsening, in addition to occasional ward-finding difficulties and a feeling that her short-term memory is impaired. These symptoms prompted a MRI of the brain to be performed by her primary care physician, which showed multiple white matter subcortical lesions, and this prompted a referral to the neurology clinic for further evaluation. On her neurologic exam, no significant abnormalities are found, including in, on a brief bedside cognitive assessment. And on re, upon review of her MRI, which had been performed, we see that she has predominantly small lesions, so less than three millimeters, punctate in appearance involving the subcortical white matter. But of those lesions, there are three that are periventricular and two that are juxtacortical in location, but do not exhibit any post gadolinium enhancement or diffusion restriction. This patient sounds like a pretty complicated diagnostic challenge. Dr. Kornberg, what approach to diagnosis would you recommend? Yes, as you mentioned, this patient is somewhat complicated, but is also typical of the type of patient we may have referred to us in our MS center. And from the history and the testing that was described by Elias, there are some red flags that would suggest a diagnosis other than MS. Specifically, the known history of lupus is a red flag, given that the symptoms and imaging could be explained by lupus. 
Also, the clinical symptoms that she describes, the cognitive concerns, the paresthesias, the fatigue are fairly nonspecific. And although they're common in MS, they're also common in many other conditions. She also doesn't describe a convincing story of discrete onset of symptoms that would suggest a relapse. And also, the imaging is not classic for MS in the sense that many of the lesions are small and punctate, you know, which is not classic for MS. On the other hand, MS does coexist with other autoimmune diseases. Sometimes patients have difficulty pinpointing an onset of their symptoms, and there's also the possibility that she might have a progressive onset MS. And then finally, not all MRIs that are truly MS look classic. And even though there are some atypical features, she does technically meet McDonald's criteria for dissemination in space. So in summation, Dr. Kornberg? So someone like this, I think overall, hearing the clinical history, my greatest suspicion would be for a sinus manifestation of lupus, specifically a small vessel vasculopathy. But MS, as well as a number of, of other mimicking conditions, can't be entirely excluded. So my approach at this point would be to pursue a workup to evaluate those different possibilities and hopefully shed more light on the correct diagnosis. So the workup, Dr. Satirkos? What was done and what were the results for this patient? I think that firstly, in our approach to the workup, given the possibility of an ischemic etiology to these lesions, as mentioned previously, I think that we definitely need to make sure to complete an evaluation for those etiologies. Now, typically, this is usually a small vessel vasculopathy. However, large vessel disease can also cause lesions like these that we can see sometimes. And additionally, lupus can actually involve the heart often and causing Liebman sacs endocarditis, leading to embolic strokes, which could potentially be an alternative etiology for these lesions. So I definitely would want to make sure to evaluate the large blood vessels of the head and neck to make sure that we don't see any abnormal narrowing there, which can be either due to atherosclerosis or due to a vasculitis. Additionally, a cardiac echocardiogram would be reasonable as well. Both of these were performed in this patient and were unremarkable. Furthermore, a thorough laboratory evaluation would also need to be performed in order to assess, first of all, for inflammatory activity due to lupus. There are some nonspecific markers that we can check, including ESR and CRP, which were mildly elevated in this case, complement levels, which were within normal limits, check a nuclear antigen panel, including an extracted nuclear antigen panel, which was negative. However, her ANA was positive at 1 to 640. And especially important are antiposolipid antibodies in order to make sure that there's not an underlying coagulopathy that could lead to small vessel strokes and lead to her presentation. Otherwise, we typically, in a patient with multiple sclerosis, would like to evaluate the spinal cord since this is a disease that involves the central nervous system. So in addition to the brain, will very frequently affect the spinal cord and will often cause asymptomatic lesions to be there. And the, the pattern of the configuration of such lesions can aid in the differential diagnosis. A spinal cord MRI was performed in this patient and was unrevealing. Additionally, cerebrospinal fluid analysis is one of the most common evaluation we perform in neurology, not only in the context of multiple sclerosis, but also in other diseases and can also aid in the differential diagnosis, especially given that oligoclonal bands are a marker that is present in the vast majority of people with multiple sclerosis. However, we must always bear in mind that this is a nonspecific finding and can also be seen in other autoimmune conditions as well as in infections of the central nervous system. Cerebrospinal fluid analysis showed no pleocytosis, a mildly elevated protein, 
an IgG index within normal limits at 0.5 and absence of oligoclonal banding. That's a very thorough workup, doctor. Does it give you any diagnostic certainty? So at this stage, with this evaluation, it does aid with the differential diagnosis. We haven't found any clear paraclinical marker that points definitively toward a diagnosis of multiple sclerosis. However, we're still in an uncertain territory and potential further imaging, such as imaging for a central vein sign, could aid per the articles reviewed in our newsletter issue. Was that additional imaging performed? In this instance, a MRI including a T2 star sequence was performed as a research-based protocol and showed the presence of a central vein in approximately 10% of the white matter lesions that were found in this patient. Dr. Kornberg, how would you interpret these findings? The first thing is to rule out some of the more emergent diagnoses. So as Elias mentioned, large vessel or embolic disease and also antiphospholipid syndrome in a lupus patient are diagnoses that you can't miss and would require urgent therapy. And the cardiac and vessel imaging and antiphospholipid testing was all negative. And so then really the next question is, does this fit a picture of MS or is it more likely a CNS manifestation of lupus, which is often small vessel disease? small vessel vasculopathy. And in this case, we have the spinal fluid results, which were not consistent with multiple sclerosis in that there were no oligoclonal bands present. But again, even though this has a fairly high negative predictive value, it's not 100%. And so in this case, the central vein sign was additionally helpful. This patient had about 10% of lesions that were centered around a central vein. And we know from the study that was highlighted in our newsletter issue that in MS patients, typically greater than 50% are centered around a central vein. And so this provides further ancillary evidence arguing against a diagnosis of MS. And so looking at the entire clinical picture in conjunction with this ancillary testing, I would feel comfortable in telling this patient and the referring physician that this patient does not have multiple sclerosis. And I would feel comfortable saying that I think her symptoms and the imaging findings we're seeing are a manifestation of small vessel vasculopathy, which we commonly see in patients with lupus. So just for clarity, based on everything that Dr. Kornberg just talked about, this patient most likely does not have MS. Do you agree with that, Dr. Satirkos? Yes, I agree completely with Michael's assessment. And the only point that I would like to make in summarizing the case is that there is no single finding that definitively makes a diagnosis in this case, and that it consists of putting the entire patient's picture together, including the clinical history, the examination, the paraclinical findings, including both the laboratory evaluation and the imaging, and putting all of those findings together. And that's one of the common challenges in the field of multiple sclerosis compared especially to other fields where tissue may be more accessible. Brain biopsies cannot be performed routinely, so it's often difficult to say exactly what is going on within a certain lesion. But all of this information together can help us and aid quite significantly in the differential diagnosis and make us confident in our assessment. Well, thank you for that case and discussion, doctors. And we'll return with Dr. Michael Kornberg and Dr. Elias Satirkos from Johns Hopkins in just a moment. You've been listening to a Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine e-Multiple Sclerosis Review podcast. If you're unfamiliar with our program, we're a combination newsletter and podcast continuing educational series. 
were available online without cost or prerequisite. E-Multiple Sclerosis Review newsletters are published every other month. Each issue focuses on a specific area of importance in the care of patients with multiple sclerosis and is authored by an expert clinician who reviews the current literature and provides commentary. In the month following each newsletter, a case-based podcast discussion, like the one you've been listening to, focuses that expert perspective on translating the new information into clinical practice. Continuing education credit for e-multiple sclerosis review is provided by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. For more information about e-multiple sclerosis review, please go to our website, emsreview.org. And one more thing. If you've enjoyed this podcast and found the information useful, please rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts so that others can find it as well. Thank you. Welcome back to this E-Multiple Sclerosis Review Podcast. We've been speaking with Dr. Elias Saturkos and Dr. Michael Kornberg from the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine about what some of the newer advances in the diagnosis and monitoring of patients with MS, or as we discussed in the previous case, patients with suspected MS, what all that can mean to clinical practice. So to continue in that vein, uh, let me ask you if you would please, Dr. Kornberg, to bring us another patient scenario. Okay, so the patient we're going to talk about now is a 35-year-old Caucasian woman with a known diagnosis of relapsing-remitting multiple sclerosis. She was diagnosed four years ago after presenting with right-sided optic neuritis. At that time, she had an MRI that showed several supratentorial lesions. This included both juxtacortical and periventricular lesions that were in a classic configuration for MS, including classic Dawson's finger appearance of periventricular lesions. And there was one gadolinium-enhancing lesion at the time. She was initially started on therapy with glutarium or acetate, but she was transitioned to dimethylfumarate two years ago as a result of breakthrough disease activity, which included clinical relapse that was attributable to the spinal cord and also new asymptomatic T2 lesions in her brain. On exam, there's optic pallor in her right optic disc on fundus exam. She has decreased acuity in the right eye of 2040, and she has some mild right leg weakness and some urinary urgency and frequency. It's quite clear that she's been compliant with her dimethylfumarate therapy since she's been on it, and she has been monitored with an annual brain MRI. She's had no new or worsening symptoms since she transitioned to dimethylfumarate, so in other words, no clinical relapses. She recently had an MRI brain that shows one small new periventricular lesion compared to a year prior without any gadolinium enhancement. There are no new spinal cord lesions on imaging, but she also has ancillary testing, including a serum neurofilament light chain that is greater than the 95th percentile for her age. She also had optical coherence tomography testing, or OCT, that showed a peripapillary retinal nerve fiber layer, or RNFL thickness, that was 71 microns in the right eye, which is the eye that previously had optic neuritis, and 77 microns in the left eye, which was unaffected by optic neuritis. One key question is how to approach assessing this patient's risk for future disability and the progression of future disability. Dr. Satirkos? It is important to take into account and integrate all of the data that we have at our disposal when making this risk assessment when we first see or when we see a patient in follow-up in our clinic. The factors that should be taken into account when making this assessment include demographics. These include race, sex, age clinical characteristics of the patient and the clinical characteristics of their multiple sclerosis disease course, including their current disability level, 
the p- interval over which they've accumulated their current disability and number of relapses, as well as the site of involvement within the CNS and the recovery that has occurred from prior relapses. Finally, the paraclinical findings can often aid with this assessment regarding the patient's risk for disability progression, mainly relying on magnetic resonance imaging currently. However, as reviewed in the studies in our newsletter issue, optical coherence tomography and serum neurofilament light chain can also provide important information in order to make a comprehensive assessment in these cases. Dr. Kornberg, the factors that Dr. Satirkos just mentioned, I'd like to ask you to expand a bit on how each of these can help with assessing this patient's risk of future disability. So let's start out with their demographics. Dr. Kornberg? So the patient described here falls into the most common demographic category for MS, which is a Caucasian woman in her 30s. When we're Thinking about demographic factors that are known to predispose someone to either more aggressive disease or earlier onset of disability, we're primarily looking for African-American race, male gender, and older age at onset. The three of those are the primary demographic factors that have been associated with more rapid disability. So in this case, our patient does not fit into any of those higher risk categories. What do her clinical characteristics tell you? In this case, this patient doesn't fare quite as well. She has several clinical characteristics that are associated with worse prognosis and MS. Number one, she's had incomplete recovery from prior relapses. And I would say the other important factor for her is she's had spinal cord disease. So she had a relapse that was attributable to the spinal cord with an associated lesion in the spinal cord. And in terms of territory in the CNS, we know that lesions in the spinal cord and in the brainstem tend to be associated with a worse prognosis in terms of more rapid onset of disability in the future. On the other hand, she has not had any clinical relapses while she's been on her current disease-modifying therapy. And so this is part of the reason why it's important to have further paraclinical testing to parse out what her risk of disease progression is going forward. Her paraclinical findings. Uh, Tell us about those, Dr. Satirkos. Firstly, I would start from the MRI findings, which is what we mainly use as a paraclinical tool in clinical practice currently. So this patient's MRI showed a decent number of lesions, including at baseline with a lesion accumulation during the first years after diagnosis. And these are factors that we know are also associated with a potentially more aggressive disease course. However, it appears that Overall, since starting her newer medication, she's been relatively stable, although continues to exhibit some radiological breakthrough, given that, as we mentioned, she had development of one new T2 lesion since starting therapy, and that should be borne in mind. Furthermore, though, in addition to conventional MRI characteristics that we assess, as reviewed in this current newsletter issue, neurofilm and light chain and optical coherence tomography can provide additional information. And so in this case, we saw that the neurofilm and light chain was greater than the 95th percentile for age compared to health controls. And this is supportive of ongoing neuroaxonal damage and suggests an increased risk in the future of disability worsening, as well as brain and spinal cord atrophy, which generally mirrors the disability progression occurring in MS. 
Importantly, however, neurofilament light chain is not a specific marker for MS. It's, as I mentioned, a nonspecific marker of neuroaxonal damage, which can occur for various reasons. So it'd be important when receiving this result to make sure that there's no potential confounding factors that could elevate the level, such as let's say that she sustained a concussion in a car accident the week before this measurement was made. Furthermore, she has an optical coherence tomography scan that shows that in an eye that has never been affected clinically by optic neuritis, there is significant thinning of the retinal nerve fiber layer. And as reviewed in our current newsletter, this recent large study has supported that this finding also is suggestive of an increased risk for future disability progression. A lot of information here. Add it all up for us, if you would, please, Dr. Kornberg. Sure. So the important thing for any patient is to not really focus on any one feature individually and and try to put everything together as a whole to make an assessment of a patient's future disease course and the best course of therapy. And what I would say is that this is a patient that overall I'm worried about. So putting everything together, there are a number of features, both clinical and paraclinical, that suggest that she is at high risk of future disability. And so these would be the clinical features of incomplete recovery from prior relapses, known involvement of her spinal cord, the paraclinical features of having new lesion development while on her current therapy, a very high neurofilament light level that we know is associated with risk of disability progression over the following year and brain and spinal cord atrophy, and also an OCT showing retinal nerve fiber layer thinning, even in the eye unaffected by optic neuritis, that seems to suggest a significant amount of neurodegeneration that has already happened and, again, is an independent risk factor for more rapid onset of disability. Dr. Saturkos, all of these findings, how do they influence your therapeutic decision-making? Yes, I think that that's the, the most important question, and that's kind of what this all comes down to. I think that the first and most important thing is to establish that the patient is actually compliant with the medication. Whenever we see a patient with features suggestive of disease breakthrough, we have to make sure that compliance or side effects that are leading to noncompliance are not an issue. So that's one of the most common causes of failing a disease-modifying therapy in clinical practice. Importantly, though, it's not entirely clear if escalating to a more aggressive therapy at this point, since she's doing, again, from a clinical perspective, reasonably well on the current medication, although there are paraclinical features that suggest an increased risk for future disability progression, it's unclear if escalating will necessarily mitigate that increased risk that we know that she likely has. So there's no clear right answer. And this case, I think, is important because it highlights a conundrum that we frequently face in clinical practice, where we are often faced with making decisions based on limited data without having clear studies that suggest what to do in terms of patients like this in order to preserve function long term. I think it's important to take into account this and to just be frank with the patient discussing the current data that is available, the gaps in our knowledge and tailor the therapy depending on the patient's preference, patient's potential comorbidities, which affect the safety profile of the drug and are important to take into account, as well as the patient's risk tolerance, since, again, more aggressive therapies are associated with the risk of more severe side effects in instances like this. And it's really a decision that we have to help the patient make and make sure that they are informed in order to make this together in the clinic. 
Doctors, thank you both for today's cases and discussion. Let's wrap things up now by reviewing today's key takeaways as they relate to our learning objectives. So to begin, the central vein sign, its potential use in discriminating MS from mimicking conditions. Dr. Kornberg? So the key takeaway here is that one key difference between MS and other mimicking conditions is that MS lesions tend to be centered around a central vein, and you can see this using the central vein sign on MRI. And so we presented the case of a patient in whom looking specifically at the percentage of lesions that had a central vein sign provided further evidence against the diagnosis of multiple sclerosis. And our other learning objective, the role of emerging biomarkers, including optical coherence tomography and serum neurofilament light chain, and predicting future disability in MS. So we presented the case of a woman who had OCT and neurofilament light measures that have been shown in recent research reviewed in our newsletter to independently be associated with increased risk of disability progression over the ensuing several years. We still don't have great evidence that an escalation of therapy will have a meaningful impact on these biomarkers. And so that's an important area of research for the future. Dr. Michael Kornberg, Dr. Elias Aturkos, thank you both for joining us in this eMultiple Sclerosis Review podcast. Well, thank you again for having us. I enjoyed it. Thank you, and it was a pleasure. For eMultiple Sclerosis Review, I'm Bob Busker. This podcast is presented in conjunction with the eMultiple Sclerosis Review Newsletter, a peer-reviewed literature review certified for CME and CE credit emailed monthly to clinicians treating patients with multiple sclerosis. This activity has been developed for the MS care team, including neurologists, nurse practitioners, nurses, physician assistants, and other healthcare providers who care for patients with MS. There are no fees or prerequisites for this activity. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine is accredited by the ACCME to provide continuing medical education for physicians. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine designates this enduring material for a maximum of 0.5 AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Physicians should claim only the credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in this activity. This educational resource is provided without charge, but registration is required. To register to receive eMultiple Sclerosis Review via email, please go to our website, www.emsreview.org. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. Use of the name of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine implies review of the educational format, design, and approach. Please review the complete prescribing information for specific drugs, combinations of drugs, or use of medical equipment, including indication, contraindications, warnings, and adverse effects before administering therapy to patients. E-Multiple Sclerosis Review is supported by educational grants from Biogen Incorporated and Celgene Corporation. This program is copyright with all rights reserved by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine.